God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for you. We thank you that you have chosen us out of the world, Lord, and that you have gathered us here together, Father, for your glory. I pray, Father, that uh, as we come here to worship, Lord, we worship in spirit and truth. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit to do your work. Lord, I pray now that as I uh, try to expound the scripture here, Lord, that you would speak through me, strengthen me, Lord, uh, for your glory, Lord, and that we would, we would know you, Lord. We wouldn't know stuff, but we would know you, and that that would transform our lives, Father, for your glory. Amen. So I've been kind of loosely studying through Hebrews for the past couple, two, three weeks, and uh, knew a sermon was coming up, so I decided, okay, I'll, I'll choose Hebrews. And, um, but Hebrews is a really hard book. It is some of the most uh, sophisticated theology in, in the New Testament. And uh, so this one was, it was, it was tough. Uh, it's everything that the author here is trying to say. We don't know who the author is. Um, some people have suggested Paul. Some people have suggested Apollos even, which could, could have been. But uh, we don't know who wrote it. And we don't know for sure who even the audience was. We can deduce from reading through the scripture that it is probably Jews. Um, and it was probably Jews who uh, were saved at the beginning of the ministry of Christ. And it's an older church. And they were a church that went through the first part of the persecution of the church. And they endured it. And it even says in Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, uh, the author says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So these Jewish Christians who, from the beginning, when they were enlightened, endured the struggle, endured persecution, but they did it with a zeal. They did it with a fire. They, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their good, knowing, because they had a hope, a joy, that, that something was coming. So they, they gladly let it go. But then at the end of that sentence, the author throws in, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, confidence, which has great reward. So as this church, who at the beginning was zeal and fire, endured persecution and, and joyfully uh, let it happen to them, we're now in danger of losing their confidence. The years have gone by, the decades have gone by, and 
now they are in a situation where the author's now coming to warn them. And, and he says, uh, in 2.1, they had been drifting in their walk. He says, don't neglect this great salvation. So through the years, they had become dull of, dull of hearing. He said, by now you ought to be teachers, but now you need someone to teach you the, the elementary principles. Uh, so they had become sluggish. They had become lazy in their walk. They neglected really listening to the word. And so therefore, it, it caused them to be dull. It caused them to, to not set their eyes and their heart on the Lord. And in, uh, but through this, the author is showing up and he's coming here to exhort them. Uh, many people believe that Hebrews is as a sermon and that this author basically came and preached this message to them to encourage this, this old church, this old Jewish church, who may now be in the throes again of uh, persecution. The letter was probably written about mid-60s, and now the pers- persecution is heating up again, and they are they're not wanting to do it. And as Jewish Christians, they may be tempted, let's go back to Judaism, let's go back to what we know, that the persecution is heated, heated up and ramped up on Christians. The first persecution was mainly for Jews, but now they're, 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 there's this wanting to, to sit back and coast, maybe move back to somewhere else and avoid this. And the author is saying, you can't do this. You can't go back. In fact, he says he encourages them in 12 12 through 14, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. You must do this. And in this warning, and in this warning, he starts in 315. He says, While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So he warns them, Hebrews, don't harden your heart. And he's now, he's referring as, don't harden your heart as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who come out of Egypt led by Moses? So, Moses leads the Israelites out of, out of Egypt and he's preaching a word to them through the signs and the miracles and through Moses and he leads them out and, and the father is saying, they did provoke me. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so he says, so he says to them, he's, he's using the Israelites who came out of Egypt, who saw the word through the power of the miracles. They had Moses' teaching, but yet the Father was not pleased with them. And they did not enter the rest because they hardened their hearts. He says in verse 9, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Which is astounding, right? Because what they see, they saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw the plagues. They saw 
the, the Shekinah glory and the pillar of cloud at night and day. And uh, they, they saw the revealing of God. They saw the preaching of God through all of this. And they were led through it. And even at the end of it, turn to, I'll turn to Exodus 15. And even at the end of it, Moses and Miriam sing this wonderful song. And he says, I will sing the Lord for he is highly exalted. Well, before that, he says, then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the flowing water stood like heap. The deeps are congealed in the heart of the sea. So they go on and on. They're, they're celebrating the Lord. They're excited about what they, the Lord has done. And they're seeing it. But then, right after that, chapter 16, he says, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. In the wilderness, the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when he sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for he who have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So the Israelites, as, as they see God and they see his power, and they, they are pulled out of Israel by a mighty hand, they sing about it, they rejoice about it, next day, grumbling. Next day, they're upset with God. And why? Because they're hungry. They want to eat. They want to drink. And it says, he says again, when we go back to our passage, 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. As they sat there and grumbled, after seeing such a, a display of the glory of God, the word that was preached through the miracles, their hearts grumbled. Their hearts were hard. If you look at uh, verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the days of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. The problem with the Israelites is they did not believe. Their heart was not regenerated. They, they had no heart for the Lord. And he says, and they did not know my ways. And so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the writer of Hebrews is bringing up the Israelites coming out of Egypt as, an, as a, a warning to these Hebrews, as, a, as an example of people who've had the word preached to them. They, they participated in what God is doing, but yet did not enter into a rest. And he says, I want to just turn back again, right back to 
Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful, faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in all his house. So he addresses them as holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling. And then he says again at 3.6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So a lot of people have looked at these passages and uh, they make the case that our salvation is not secure. It's not final. We, we believe once saved, always saved. But they like to use these passages and obviously chapter 6, the, the infamous, infamous passage of can you lose your salvation. And the writer of Hebrews is, is speaking to these to these Hebrews, these, the ones who are growing dull and, and they're sluggish and they're neglecting their salvation. <clears throat> and now he's using an example of people who didn't get saved. They didn't make it into the rest. And he's saying to them, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So, are we, the, are we that house if we make it to the end? Do we get to be the house if we make it to the end? Or are we the house and so we make it to the end? I think what the author is saying here is here, we are the house and the evidence of us being the house is that we will persevere to the end. I think this is exactly what he's saying and I think he repeats himself again in verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. Remember he addressed him at the beginning as holy brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling. Then verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So in other words, you're a partaker, you're a partaker of Christ and the evidence of that is you hold your faith firm unto the end. He doesn't say you will become a partaker of Christ if you hold your confidence to the end, but you are a partaker of Christ. And the evidence of that is that you hold it firm to the end. And so in the argument, as people try to say like this is, well, here's, here it is. Chapter six, these, if you don't do this, do this, you're not saved. But that's not what the author is saying. He's saying you are saved. You're a partaker of a holy calling your Christ's house, which he is building. And the evidence of that is you, you will make it to the end. So he's warning them. And he's using the Israelites as the example. And he's, but he's, I think what he's doing is building the assurance in them through their partakers. He says, remember the former days when you joyfully accepted the plundering. You did these things. Here is the fruit of salvation. But then we look at chapter 6, the infamous chapter 6. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucified in themselves the Son of God 
and put him to open shame. So who is that speaking of? I mean, when we read this passage, it's frightening, right? For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them. Is this speaking of a true Christian? No. This is, speak, this is the Israelites who he's using as an example. This is the Israelites. They participated in all those things. They saw it. They partook of it. They were there. They enjoyed it. But they fell away. They were only partakers in the sense of being a part of it. Just like there may be some in this room here today. You, you have a profession of faith, but you may not have the possession of the faith. And these people are, this, it's the same thing. He's not talking about the true possessors. He says, because you, he says, and then having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put them to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls in it, brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistle, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and, its ends, and it ends up being burned. This is the Israelites. All of them fell in the desert. All of them perished. They produced thorns and thistles. Their disbelief, their grumbling, their complaining, their, their fornications, all of that was their thorns and thistles. They participated. They uh, partook of the heavenly calling. They did all these things, but produced thorns and thistles. They proved to be not those who endure to the end, holding firm to the faith. And so that's what the author here is now coming to the Hebrews and, and warning them. As he sees the Hebrews dragon, as he sees them becoming dull, as he sees them becoming sluggish, he's warning them, guys, you have to hold your hope and, and firm confidence to the end because the Israelites who participated in all the same things did not make it into the rest of God. And so, why does he give this warning to them? If it's once saved, always saved, why does he even bother giving the warning to them? Because I think the warnings are the goads that God uses to keep us in line, to keep us uh, holding firm to our faith, to keep our focus and our attention on Christ and his word and, and this great salvation that he has given us. It's these warnings. Like we bought a new car and it has warnings all over it. We back up, there's a beep going off. We go across the line, there's a beep going off. If a car slows down too fast in front of us, a beep goes off. There are warning signs all over. And the author of this letter is doing just that for these Hebrew believers. He's giving them that warning. Hey, you guys, you're slipping you, you, you want to coast, but you can't coast in the Christian life. And so he's sending out these warnings. And these warnings to true believers, we take them serious. Because we see in ourselves that we do do this, right? We do get hard-hearted. We do get sluggish. We do desire to coast. We do desire when, when discouragement comes in and, and things just don't seem to be going right, what happens? then sin starts looking appealing. You want to find escape. You want to get out of that discouraged side. So these are real issues that real still affect us. And we, and we can either let them get us down and become like the Hebrews did here, 
become ineffective, sluggish, not maturing in our Christian faith, or we can heed the warnings that, that this writer gives us and set our sights and affections back on Christ, strengthening our weak needs, raising up our, our, our hands that are drooping and make straight paths for our feet. So how does, how, does the author, uh, how does the author want them to do this? How does he want them to, to go from drooping, dull, coasting mentality? How does, he want them, how does he now turn their hearts and get them set back on the straight and narrow of growing and maturing in Christ? He says, for this reason, chapter 2, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So what has been spoken to us? They had the, they had the miracles. They had Moses. They had they had all those, all those things that God worked at that time and they neglected it. And so what have we had? Well, that's our text for this morning. So back at chapter one. I think the key to longevity, fruitful, faithful ministry is our love for Christ. I think what ultimately, the, the fuel that fires us to, to fight the good fight, to be disciplined is because we love him so much. I, I know that I preach rewards and I still preach rewards. Live for the reward. You need to live for the reward. You need to have a vision of heaven and what's to come to make these things dull here. But I think uh, somebody had asked me, well, what if you just live for the reward and, and that's all you ever did? You just become a mercenary. And I don't think you can do it. I don't think you can live the Christian reward solely looking for rewards. It, it's not a strong enough pull for you. In, in the moment of the heat of temptation, when things are getting really hard, you're just like, I, I don't care. I just, just whatever, whatever I get, I don't care. The temptation becomes too strong. The, the, this walk becomes too heavy. It's not enough pull. It's not enough pull. Imagine if you were told you've, you got the rewards, you're going to heaven, it, it's here, it's now, and then they tell you, but Christ isn't going to be here for a while. Would that disappoint you? That would disappoint me immensely. See, Christ is the reward. And everything that he brings, we love it and we want it. But if he's not there, it's, it's empty. Because our faith, our trust, our hope is in a person. It's not in stuff. The captain of our salvation is, he is our heart's desire. And so the writer of Hebrews starts here at the beginning. God, after he had spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So it starts off, God spoke. God is not an impersonal force. It's, he's not some cold, uh, he's not some cold uh, deity He's not some force that's out there that's just creating and passing through. God spoke. He, this is a real being. And he's merciful because we need God to speak, don't we? Us dead sinners who don't know God, who can't figure out God, 
We can tell there's a God through creation and the law that's written in our heart, but that's it. We need him to come to us and speak. And so God spoke. But he spoke in the past. He says, long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. What does he mean by that? Many books through the prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, Moses, in his writings of the first five books, Kings, Proverbs, Psalms, through these men, God spoke through visions, types, symbols, dreams, a burning bush, wind, fire, and a still small voice. He spoke through all these portions in all these ways. And all of it was culminating to that one final revelation of the sun, right? And even in Genesis 3.15, where he's the promise of a savior is initially made. And so... Everybody is hearing the word of God through the prophets, through the Old Testament. And, and it's, a, it's God's word. It's a, it's a full word. But the fulfillment of that word is Jesus Christ. And so, um, he says, but now in these last days. So, age before, prophets, visions, signs, symbols. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than any other form of revelation. Jesus is the pinnacle, the fullness of God's revelation. And Jesus is the only expected person ever in history. Nobody has ever been looking for anybody else. We're not waiting. We've never waited and expected uh, a Julius Caesar or, or a Donald Trump or a anything. We're not, these are just people who happen in time and history. But there are, there is this expectation of someone who's going to come and someone who's going to save the world. In John 4.25, when the Messiah comes, well, remember when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and he's revealing himself to her. This, this perfect revelation of the Father is at the well. She doesn't know it yet. But he begins to talk to her. And uh, in their conversation, I think what's interesting is she says, when the Messiah comes, he will declare all things to us. And remember before she said that, I always, I always found that interesting. Why would she say that of all things? Why would she say he would declare all things? Why, why wouldn't she say, uh, when the Messiah comes, he's going to save us. When the Messiah, son, when the Messiah comes, uh, Things are going to be great. But she says he will declare all things to us. So she was expecting a Messiah. And she was expecting a Messiah who would clear things up. That, that this long-awaited, expected person in the Old Testament that we didn't quite know the full story to coming, she knew that when he came, he would make it all clear. He would be a perfect revelation. And then she runs, to the, she runs to her village that she lived in. And she's like, hey, could this be the Messiah? He told me everything I ever, uh, I've, I've done. And they run out. They meet him. And they say to, to her, we no longer believe because of what you said. For we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. That sounds fantastical, Right? A group, a village of people meet one person in a couple hours like, yeah, this is the savior of the world. 
That just sounds fantastical, right? It sounds unbelievable. But this is how glorious our Christ is. This is how clear his message is. That when they met him and they heard him speak, that they were convinced this is the Savior world. And the Bible says they were saved. It's a fantastical story. But this is the mightiness of Christ. This is the, the clarity of Christ. Christ, God has spoken now through the Son, and it is a perfect revelation. But they were expecting it. And they know that He was the Savior of the world. They know that the one that they were expecting is the Savior of the world. Again, Matthew eleven three. 3. Uh, you remember John the Baptist. He's in prison, and he, he sends messengers to Jesus and he asked, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? They're expecting someone. The Old Testament is the progressive revelation of God and the, the, the apex or the, the fulfillment of that progression of that revelation is Jesus Christ. And so he, he shows up, he's saving people. From the Old Testament, through Abraham would come the nation that Messiah would come from through Jacob, the tribe of the Messiah, through David, the family of Messiah, Micah, the town of the Messiah, Daniel, the time he would be born, and Malachi predicted the forerunner who would prepare the way of this expected one. Everybody was expecting one. Jesus Christ is the only expected one, and he was expected to come to save, to reveal God fully, and to save his people. So the glory of God, Jesus is better, is that he is the one who is able. He is the Savior. He is the full revelation of God. And if you look at 1 Peter 1, 10, 11, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So the prophets who prophesied of the Christ to come searched their own writings to understand how it was going to look, how it was going to form, how it was going to be. They knew what they wrote about. They understood what they wrote about. But that full revelation of Jesus Christ, they leave and looked into their own writings to understand it. And he shows up. And people, in first, when they first communicate, they know this is him. This is the clear revelation of God. John 1, 17, 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so we move on. Verse 2. So this first section I titled it was uh, Christ, the full revelation. He clears up the confusion. He is the revealed Savior of the world. And now the second, second session, se- section, he has the ability to save. Verse 2. In these last days has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things. In Psalm 2, 6 through 8, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Matthew 20, 18, all authority has even, 
has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom in one which will not be destroyed. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Everything is his. I just want to turn to Philippians, real quick. Two, five through eleven. It says that he was appointed. Is it? Isn't Jesus? Isn't he the heir of all things simply because he's God? But you remember, Jesus, the Son of God, became a man. And I just want to read this passage here to you. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are, are in, the, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is heir of all things because he earned it as the Son of God, as Jesus Christ, the God-man. He came here and was obedient to the point of death fulfilling his father's will, his desires, and his wishes. And so because of that, he earned it. He is the heir of everything. So what what does that matter to us? What's that matter if Jesus is the heir? We know Jesus is the heir, right? What's that matter to us? Remember, we're to hold our confidence and hope sure to the end. In this Savior that we're holding this confidence, hope, and sure to the end is because if he's heir of all things, nothing, nothing can stop us from being saved. Remember Romans 8.30, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Why can't it separate us? Because it's his. And he does with it as he pleases. And he won't let it get in the way of you being saved. Nothing can separate us. It's his. Matthew 5, 5, part of the reward. He says, the meek shall inherit the earth. How do I know I'm going to inherit the earth? Because it's his. It's his to give away. And again, Revelation 21, 1, there shall no longer be death or mourning or crying or any more pain. How do we know? Because it's all his and he is going to govern it with a mighty hand. We know that our future and secure and reward and glory to come is all secure because it's all his and he rules it. It matters that he is the heir of all things because we are co-heirs with him and we will, re- and we will share in this inheritance with him. When he says he has come to give us life and life more abundantly, the life that is to come, brothers and sisters, I, I, we can't even describe it. We will be in, com- we will be in communion with with this king, this mighty king, enjoying his inheritance with him, ruling and reigning with him 
forever with no death, no pain. He is the heir of all things and he shares it with us. This is a mighty salvation that has been given to us. We cannot neglect this salvation. And then it says also in verse 2, Through whom he also made the world. Everything is by, everything is his by the fact he created. So he's the, he's, he was appointed heir as, as man and he earned it. So he's appointed heir. He earned this. But then also, he's, it's all, he's also the heir of it because he is God. He is the second person of the Trinity through whom, you all, through whom he also made the world. So he, he, he owns everything by his inheritance, but he also owns everything because he created everything. And so it's a, it's a double security. And if you just look at Hebrews 1, 10 and 12, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. He is, a, he is the eternal God who created everything. He'll dispose of it as he wills. And this is our Savior. This is the one we are hoping in. We have nothing to fear. Even John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He created everything. In verse 3, it says that He is the radiance of His glory, an exact imprint of His nature. So, Jesus Christ, now, he's, now the author is saying that Jesus Christ, He's the heir, he's, he's the creator of all things, and now He's saying that Jesus Christ is the glory the radiance of the glory of the Father. So in the Old Testament, we had, we had guys like David, Solomon, Jonah. We had all these guys who were giving us bits and pieces. They were giving us little whispers of who God is. But now it's the Son shows up and He is the radiance of the glory of the Father. When you see me, you see the Father and so the radiance of Jesus Christ, it's like, it's like the sun blazing in its glory and the light shines through here. This Jesus Christ is emanating off the Father. He is what we see when we see the Father. This is his glory. I think when we look in the past, we look at the heroes, right, of the Old Testament. When I grew up Roman Catholic, I was embarrassed of Jesus. I was embarrassed of I, I, he was wimpy. He, he was just wimpy. He, I, I looked at stories of David, I looked at stories of Samuel, and my heart was there. I was like, these guys are tough. These guys are solid. Look at wisdom. Look at Solomon and how smart he was. And then we look at Jesus and he's turning the other cheek and people are hitting him and he just looks soft and weak. This was me as a kid, as a Roman Catholic. This was my real real attitude, my real impression. And I was embarrassed of him. I, I just was. I, I like, gosh, why can't Jesus be like David? David and his might and his, his glory. And so we look at Solomon. Let's compare this. Let's compare these guys to Jesus. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, right? Let me uh, just turn real quick to your passage. But Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. He was so wise that the queen of Sheba traveled to the ends of the earth to see 
his glory and everything that he did. And by the end of it, she, she, it said her breath was taken away. That's how impressive Solomon was, right? But what happened to Solomon? We get done reading the book. Solomon, like we ask, Solomon even saved? He had so many, he let women draw his heart away. And, and the gods of the women that he had, he started serving and worshiping them. Jesus Christ would, never did that. Jesus Christ in all his wisdom, remember the Pharisees come to him and they try to trip him up in his, his uh, words. I just turn to Luke 20. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement. So they wanted to trip him up in his words so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any, any <clears throat> but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's trying to trip them up, right? Devious people. But Jesus, in his wisdom, he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness is inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in saying, and they were, and they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they become silent. You got to think that these are the, the educated guys. These are the scholars. They're coming to trip him up. And look at that answer. We probably would have been tripped up with that. Well, well, yeah, God tells us to Romans 13 and Jesus is like, whose inscription's on it? Caesar's. Give it to Caesar. But to God, give God the things of God. And they were amazed. They, they couldn't, like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. That's brilliant. And then the Sadducees come and they, they, they concoct this story of five, six, seven marriages with one woman and seven brothers and, and they get to the end of it thinking they're smart. I'll just start at 34. Jesus, or 33. They, they, they concoct this story. And then they say, finally the woman dies also. In the resurrection, Jesus, therefore, which one's wife will they she be? For all seven had her. How are you going to answer that, Jesus? <laughs> Trying to trip Jesus up. Okay, they got seven marriages here. How's, it, how's this going to happen? If there's really a resurrection, Jesus, how are you going to, how's this going to get fixed, Right? That was Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. 
And so he, he, he answers the question, you're ignorant. You don't know the scriptures. You don't even know what you're talking about. Look what God says. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not he was the God. He is the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. They're not dead. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And he silences the Sadducees. You got to remember, these are the PhDs. These are the guys, the learned. They know their stuff. And he's making them look like fools. His wisdom is, they said no man ever spoke like this. And obviously, right? The, the, the village with the woman at the well, in an hour, two hours, yep, this is the son of God. It's fantastical. And so Solomon, his wisdom doesn't compare. And the pinnacle of Christ's wisdom is the cross. When the enemies of Christ thought that victory was in hand, Jesus on the cross, ready to die, victory's in hand, that's where they were defeated. Christ defeated his enemies at the cross. God, he upheld the justice of God in as he was declaring wicked men just. That was the wisdom of God. Enemies destroyed, justice upheld, and sinners made righteous. David slew his enemies. David was a mighty warrior. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. David slew Goliath. But who is Goliath? He was just a big man. David killed a big man. Who did Jesus get into the ring with? Satan himself. When we look at the passage in Matthew, when he was led into the wilderness and he was fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, he was getting into the ring with Satan. We have all been in the ring with Satan. David was in the ring. Solomon was in the ring. Adam and Eve were in the ring. Any of us conquer Satan? Nobody's conquered Satan. And this one, this mighty Savior, Jesus Christ, I, I think we, always, we take for granted this scene of when he's being tempted in the wilderness. Everybody failed at this. We feel miserable at this, but he gets into the ring with Satan and he defeats Satan. And it's at his weakest point. It said he fasted 40 days and at the end of the fast, he was hungry. Experts say that when you fast, uh, you know, you're hungry at first, but after you get past three or four days, your hunger disappears. But as you're about ready to die, your hunger kicks back in. Jesus was at the point of death when he stepped into the ring with Satan and defeated him, knocked him out. Satan is mighty, or Jesus is mightier than David. And when I look at Samson and his strength, right? He kills a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey. He goes to, get, he goes to Gaza. He sleeps with a uh, prostitute there. But then his enemies are there, and they, they tell the enemies, hey, uh, Samson is here. And so they hide out and wait for Samson, but Samson finds out that they're going to get him. So in the middle of the night, Samson goes to the city gates, and Samson takes the city gates, and he rips them up from the ground, and he carries them on his shoulders 38 miles away and plants them on a hill. That's pretty impressive for a guy. What gate did Jesus rip up? Jesus went to the gates of hell for us. And he ripped up the gates of hell and he threw them far away, never to be seen for us again. He's far greater than Samson ever could be. Samson just had a little physical strength. Jesus had the strength 
of a mighty Savior, of the God-man. Isaiah 6.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He tore off those gates of hell and he loosed us from the grip of Satan. None of these guys, these guys who I thought when I was a kid were so great, Jesus wasn't. These guys aren't so great. And Jesus is spectacular. Jesus is beautiful. When Moses, so in all this, Jesus is, is, is just, he's, he's, he's emanating the glory of God in all of this. And Moses, remember Moses, he looked at the, uh, the backside of God and he shone and he was, he was glowing and everybody was scared and they like, put a veil on. But Moses was only reflecting the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. In verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And I like this, this, this um, order here. It says word of his power. Always, like, always thought, why does it say the pow- his powerful word? And I saw some translations say that. But it, I think what I see here is when it says that the word of his power, he's not just throwing out magic words and, and the powers in these words, but he's the power. So that when he even speaks, his power is causing everything to happen. He's holding, he brings things into existence and he holds it simply by his command. And then verse 4. When he had made purification, okay. So we looked at we looked at how he is the expected savior. He has the ability to save because he is, he is the inheritor of everything, and he has the power and the glory to save. And then here's this fa- this last one. So then, how does he save? When he had made purifications of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the gospel. When he had made purification for sins, this mighty Savior, this most glorious person who ever walked the earth, more glorious than David, Solomon, anybody who's ever walked the earth, this glorious one, this one who emanates the glory of the Father, went to the cross. He was killed for us. He shed his blood for our sins. And he has opened the way, the passage for us to be with him forever, in communion with him and the Father forever. And notice it says, he sat down. And I think this is the key, brothers and sisters. We can't forget that he, Jesus, is a person in all of our study, and all of our going after doctrines and systematizing all of our stuff, we cannot forget the person. We have to have a relationship with him, not just doctrines and um, systems that we set over here, and then not all, it be, all it does is become an intellectual pursuit or an academic work. We have a relationship with a person this one who has loved us with all of his power, he, Jesus. And we need to know that this Jesus, I want us to stop sharing Jesus. 
I want us to start proclaiming Jesus. We have got to in this world that is dying and darkening every, every year. I mean, every year it is getting worse and worse. We have got to start boldly proclaiming him. He is the expectant one. He, he is the one to come. We proclaim him. We've got to stop being embarrassed of him and just sharing him sheepishly. Start proclaiming him. He is a king and he's coming back to destroy his enemies and give rest to his people. Let's proclaim him. And his work on the cross was a, was a perfect work. It was a finished work. He sat down. This is, I think this, this is significant because what did the, the, um, uh, the priest always do? Slaughtering the animals in the temple. What one piece of furniture was not in the temple? A chair. Their work was never done. It was, it was sacrificing and slaughtering day after day, night after night. The work was never done. This one perfect Savior, high priest, comes, does the work, sheds his blood, and sits down at the right hand of the glory of God. This is our perfect Savior. I just want to read this. Demons run to him and bow down. He looks at rebellious people and has compassion on them. Lepers come for help and he puts his hands on them and they are made clean. Outcasts, prostitutes, tax collectors flock to him. He calms the wind with a word. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He opens the eyes of the blind. He heals diseases. He casts out demons and raises the dead. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Brothers and sisters, how can we be saved if we neglect this word that's been preached to us through Christ? It can't be. Don't neglect your salvation. Fight this, Paul calls it the fight of faith. We endure, we persevere in hope. In hope because of our Savior. Our Savior, how great and grand of a Savior that he is. So this morning, as maybe one of the last times I speak to you here in the next 10 months, I just wanted to leave you with a word of encouragement. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Abide in him. Remember the passage, Tony, just John 15? Abide in me. You can do nothing if you don't abide in Jesus. He is our strength. He is our source. He is, he is our everything. And so... This morning, turn your eyes to Jesus. He's better than anything. He's better than the life you have here now. He's better than any inheritance you can have here. He's better than your family. He's better than everything, your job, your career, your name, your prestige. He is everything. Worship him and abide in him. Lord Jesus, we love you. You are so wonderful, Lord. I wish I had better words to describe you. Lord, I pray that we would, from this day forward, Lord, renew our, our hearts, Lord, that we would be solely dedicated to you, Lord, that we would uh, not become dull in hearing, that we would not try to coast, Lord, that we would not let our stuff get in our way, Lord, of getting to you. Father, and you are our strength, and you are the one who is authoring this salvation, this faith in us. Do that in us, Lord, we ask. All for your glory, Lord, and all for the joy that we will have, we have now, and will have 
with you in eternity forever. Amen.